Acres that we call Echo Zoe Ministries. The name comes from the Greek, just a real quick, it, uh, echo literally means to have, first person singular, so I have, and, and Zoe means life. And I came up with the name while I was kind of starting to teach myself a little bit of Greek. Didn't get very far, but looking for a name on a website and thought, well, that sounds good, so there we go. And Eric and I started talking last spring about uh, doing some logic as materials for Echo Zoe. And uh, we did an introductory podcast, if you haven't heard it. You can go on and take a listen. Uh, back in April, I think it was number 60. So you go to echozoe.com slash 60 to hear that. And the idea was that we're going to put together some materials for video that people can use to help uh, sharpen their understanding of logic. Uh, logic is very much a, uh, a foundation uh, for what, how we understand things, helps us better understand the scriptures, helps us better understand our argumentation as you're engaged in evangelism in uh, apologetics, whatnot. It's going to help you to encounter, when you encounter a false teaching, you encounter um, false, you know, bad reasoning, you're going to be able to spot it a lot better. So uh, these lessons will be video recorded, and, and uh, we're going to make that available through Echo Zoe eventually when it's done. I'm going to start off with uh, informal logic and fallacies. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to teach logical fallacies. Uh, you've got some materials here. Um, the poster that you've got there is not mine. I got that from a website called yourfallacyis.com. I know the text is very small, but I highly recommend it. It's a great resource. If, if you can't see it down on the bottom, write yourfallacyis.com on the top. And check out that site. They've got about 20, I think it's 24 fallacies on there, and they're really, really uh, well, well put together. It's short, it's curt, um, but it's very easy to understand and a uh, great resource. And we're going to go through pretty much all of those fallacies, and I've got some more that we're going to go over over the next few weeks. But, um, and then the other handouts you have there, I have one slideshow presentation that I'm going to do over the course of three weeks, so hold on to that. You're going to use that next week and the week after as well. Is there more handouts? I think we ran out of handouts. Uh, there's a... It's a couple here we can try to pass back, but so Eric and I are <laughs> sorry. Do you want to come up? Sure, sure. Yeah. We have a lot of material to cover, especially today. So if I seem rushed, it's not because I'm nervous. It's because we cut a lot of stuff to get through. Yeah, amen. We do have a lot of material. He's going to be going through three sessions for informal fallacies. Now, let me, uh, let me begin by making the case for logic, because oftentimes when you teach logic, you have people that are skeptical, especially Christians who will say, why aren't we spending our time in the Word of God? Why are we spending our time? And their argument typically is, why are we spending our time looking at man's logic, Aristelian logic? Now, let me make the case very carefully. When we are going to be studying Aristelian logic, realize Aristotle did not invent logic. He merely discovered what God had created. And so as we're studying logic, we are studying how God reasons. We see in the book of John, of course, Jesus is referred to as the divine logos. And so he created logic. And so when we look at logic, for instance, the law of non-contradiction, you can't get around these laws. They're basic to knowing anything, including the scriptures. 
For instance, the law of non-contradiction, in order to get rid of it, you have to use it to pretend that it doesn't exist. Uh, There's a great scholar named Norman Geisler. Many of you have heard of him. He said, anytime you have to use something in order to deny the very thing you're using, you don't have a very good case. Okay. (laughs) Now, this is particularly important in our postmodern era because either you're going to know God rationally through the scriptures or you're going to pretend to know him, and I would say that you won't know him at all, mystically, irrationally, through experience. And that's what we're really left with if we don't have logic in the scriptures. The other thing I want to make the case for is when you're reading technical commentaries, you're going to see a lot of times the scholars will reference, for instance, conditional sentences. They'll mention things like a protasis and an apotasis. And you're going to wonder, what in the world is that? Well, when we're done with the logic course, my prayer is that you'll know these things. You'll see and you'll say, I know exactly what a protasis is, an apotasis, and you'll understand mm-hmm. these constructions. And what that does for you is it enables you to understand the technical commentaries at a greater level, therefore helping you also understand the Word of God. The bottom line is Andy and I want to help you become better students of the Word of God, and we think logic is a great vehicle for that. So, Right, thank you. Yep. Yep. So uh, we've already kind of covered this, but why would we want to study logic? And um, We have two types of logic that we're going to cover over the next six weeks. I'm going to start at the bottom there with the informal logic, and then after I'm done, Eric's going to pick up the, fo- the next three weeks after that. He's going to talk formal logic, and that's that protasis and apotasis he talked about, and there's other concepts that he's going to teach over those three weeks. The difference is that formal logic really is the investigation of an argument itself. How is the argument constructed? Does the premise that you start with, is it valid? And if the premise is valid and the argument's constructed correctly, the the conclusion necessarily follows. You can know you have a solid conclusion based on the way it's constructed and the premise that's used. Informal logic uses arguments that are normal everyday logic or everyday language. Uh, this is the kind of thing you're going to hear every day. And when you turn on the news, if you're watching Bill O'Reilly or Piers Morgan or Rosie O'Donnell and you're watching TV and they're going to be arguing their political views, this is what you're going to encounter is this informal logic. And you're going to see, when we're done with this, you're going to see a lot of the fallacies that they use in their argumentation and you're going to be able to see right through it. Uh, Informal logic a lot of times involves arguments that are technically constructed correctly under the formal log- rules of logic, but the difference is that the conclusion doesn't necessarily follow the premise. And if you've ever heard the term non sequitur, the Latin phrase meaning it doesn't follow, we're talking about a logical fallacy and informal, uh, informal logic. So you encounter logic every day. Uh, when you discern whether something's food or not food, uh, healthy or unhealthy, fresh or stale, you're, you're dealing with logic. You know, if your dog goes out behind the shed and he, and he starts eating some mystery berries and he gets sick and dies, logically you're, gonna, you're not going to want to go make mystery berry pie. <laughs> Please don't bring it to the church picnic. Uh, so you put fuel in your car. Does it take gas? Does it take diesel? If it takes gas, can you put 87 in it or can you, does it need 92 octane? That's a logical decision you've got to come to. Advertising, thick with logic. It's thick with fallacies. You're going to see, I'm going to have some examples of that as well. Uh, I already mentioned when you watch the news, especially when you get into the opinion side, you're going to see a lot of uh, illogical arguments. And, and like I said, when we're done with this, hopefully you'll be able to see that and, and understand what they're doing, why, why it's wrong. 
And then even when you read scripture or hear presentations by preachers and teachers, good and bad, the, the orthodox and the heretical, you're going to hear logic. You're going to find logic in scripture. This is Genesis 2. This is the Garden of Eden. God says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat you shall surely die. This is an if-then statement. If you eat, you will die. Then you will die. And that's, that's a logical construction. This one's one of my favorites. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, Paul is making the case for the resurrection. He says, but if there is no resurrection from, from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, for your faith also is in vain. Moreover, are we even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all, of all men most to be pitied. So you see through this, if then, if then, if then, if then, it's all logical construction. Now, you can hear I'm going pretty quickly. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, the way I'd like to handle this is I'm going through the, the logical fallacies. We're going to be moving very quickly. I have about an average of three minutes per fallacy that I'll be able to spend talking about each. When we get uh, to pass the fallacy, we're not going to have time to go back. So if you have questions, please ask them as we're going. Uh, and your participation is highly encouraged. We're gonna, uh, we really want to uh, engage everybody here. A list of resources, I hope this showed up on the slides. It's probably hard to see. Uh, these are the sources that I used when I was putting this together. Um, most of these are, are Christian organizations. Um, Standard Reason and Tactics are Greg Kokel, very good uh, apologetics ministry that uses logic and teaches logic really well. And they, use, uh, they, they put logic into pra practice during apologetics. Uh, Fallacy Detective is a book that I highly recommend it if you're interested in logic. Um, it's, it's really geared towards about an eighth grade audience. It's very easy to understand. It's got good examples. Uh, it's a good book. Fallacy Friday is a podcast that was put together from some blog posts by a, a, a couple in New Zealand, I believe. And um, it goes through a lot of these same fallacies that we're going to talk about. It's a good resource. Um, you have your poster from yourlogicalfallacyis.com. And then we have three that are non-Christian. Uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and Wikipedia are, would probably call themselves non-sectarian, secular. And Rational Wiki is actually a, a vehemently anti-Christian atheist site. But they put together their fallacies correctly. They use them incorrectly. Their examples are terrible. But they explain them correctly. And so I, I want to include them because... Um, you can learn from them on that site. So I'm going to get into the informal. Um, we talked about uh, the differences between formal and informal. Informal is flawed reasoning and argumentation. It attempts to prove a point but fails. It's that non sequitur that I, I mentioned before. It doesn't follow. It involves natural everyday uh, language. Informal fallacies, when they're used, are not necessarily wrong. Somebody's conclusion might be correct. But the way they got to that conclusion is wrong. You can get, you can get to your final destination. You, know, you can get from here to downtown uh, many different ways. But the, you know, the, 
you, if you don't go the right way, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't get there. And so if you see a fallacy, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the conclusion is wrong, just that the argument's wrong. And I'm going to teach you too as well, like there are arguments that Christians use to refute atheism that are full of fallacies, and it doesn't help our case when people can see right through it and see they will discount our conclusions based on our arguments, bad arguments. When the, the, our, the conclusions are sound, it's just the arguments that are bad. I've got four different categories of fallacies that I put together. Um, the top one on the right there, red herring, is, uh, has two subcategories. Uh, if you get into studying this and you want to learn more and you, you're digging into those resources, you're going to find that these fallacies don't always fit nicely into categories. In fact, uh, a lot of the sources that we use, have, they categorize them completely differently. That's okay. There's a lot of art and science to this, and this is kind of the art side of things. So I'm just going to blow through here really quick. Um, these are, we're going to start with uh, red herring fallacies. This is a category of fallacies. It's also a specific fallacy. And this category of fallacies is what, what makes them a category and, and the similarities between them is that they all avoid the question. They're all going to divert your attention, distract you, whatnot. Um, we're going to go through red herring, straw man, appeal to nature, naturalistic fallacy. These are two similar fallacies. They're, there are some differences. They're gonna, we'll get to that. Uh, two wrongs make a right, burden of proof. Uh, moving the goalposts and then the no true Scotsman is kind of a specific case of moving the goalposts. Argument from anecdote and then the two subcategories of ad hominem and association fallacies. And I know you've heard me probably say a couple times I've thrown out some Latin phrases. I'm gonna really make a point to use the English too. You don't have to learn the Latin. I really just want you to understand the principles, not necessarily the names. Uh, and then we have a, the association fallacies. As we get into ad hominem, an ad hominem uh, fallacy is that it is something that attacks the person making the argument, not the argument itself. And we'll have ad hominem as a specific fallacy within that group, a genetic fallacy, poisoning the well, and to quoque, which is Latin for you too. Uh, association fallacies uh, will transfer positive or negative qualities from one thing to another because they want you to uh, associate the quality from one thing to this other thing. You get guilt by association, transfer, and then an interesting one there, reductio ad Hitlerum, which I like to call the Nazi card. Uh, the next category we probably will get to, we'll start with next week, uh, will be false assumptions. And a false assumption is one where the premise that which one draws to a conclusion is based on a faulty assumption. That's where you get circular reasoning and a very, very similar fallacy called begging the question. Uh, equivocation, loaded question. Composition and division are like opposite fallacies as are division, uh, false dichotomy and middle ground are, are kind of opposite fallacies. Etymological fallacy, it's all based on how we define words. Uh, argument from fallacy, yeah, that's why I go back and saying that the uh, conclusion might be correct, but the argument was wrong. Uh, and if you discount somebody because they made a bad argument, you're committing the, the argument from fallacy. And then uh, statistical fallacies appeal to data that are statistically or ins insignificant or irrelevant. We have appeal to authority or false authority, hasty generalizations, weak analogies, post hoc ergo propter hoc, that's a Latin phrase that means after the fact, therefore because of the fact. It's a correlation causation fallacy. Appeal to ignorance, Texas sharpshooter, gambler fallacy. 
Uh, and then finally, we'll finish off. Uh, hopefully, I'll have time. This will be two weeks from now. We'll do uh, propaganda, which is persuasion by manipulation. And you appeal to emotion, you appeal to people, um, a couple different ways. Uh, appeal to tradition, appeal to novelty, uh, repetition. Uh, I think it was that going back to that Nazi card, I think it was a, a, a Nazi propagandist who said if you say, tell the same lie over and over again, eventually people will believe it. That's an argumentum ad nauseum. Thought terminating cliche. And then uh, hopefully we'll be able to get through them all. The last one we'll talk about will be contextonomy, which is quoting out of context. So. Uh, looks like we're doing okay on time. Uh, we'll start with the red herring fallacy. Now we're getting into the fallacies now. So if you've got questions, please uh, raise your hand. Uh, well, I, I might not do the best job of explaining them all, but I want to. I want to make sure you understand them. So start off with red herring, which red herring was a category of fallacies, but it's also a specific fallacy as well. And red herring really is a debate tactic or, fa or fallacy meant to distract the either the opponent in the debate or the audience listening to the debate from the subject being debated. And typically, it induce, introduces ideas that are easier to address. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a, this legend that this, it was named after the practice of dragging a, a strong, pungent fish over a trail so bloodhounds would get distracted and go down the wrong trail. Um, it's really a legend, but it communicates well the idea behind the fallacy. Uh, red herring specifically is a fallacy itself, as I mentioned, and it's also a general category. And I had a great example that Eric shared with me as we were uh, talking this over last week. If you went to the, the Bob DeWay, Doug Padgett debate a number of years ago, Bob was, was uh, talking about logic. He said, he said, Doug, logic applies. He says, for instance, Doug, you're going to exit through the door, not through the wall. And Doug says, well, radio waves go through the wall. That's, that's a red herring fallacy. It has really nothing to do with, uh, what's, with the point. But, so I'll slow down here a little bit. Is there, if there's any questions, we're going to move on. Everybody understand red herring? You know, what's interesting is you can watch in a debate, too, when somebody's losing, they'll typically appeal to that mm -hmm. because they don't want to deal with the issue at hand, and that's what Doug was doing. He couldn't deal with what Bob was saying. And so this red herring is constructed also of equivocation. Notice right. he switches categories from a human being walking through. Yep. They can't walk through a, a wall. All of a sudden, right. he switches to the category of radio waves. So he's using equivocation right. as a red herring. And equivocation is another fallacy that we'll get to. We'll be getting to uh, that's, that's another example, too, of how you know, I mentioned that this is kind of both an art and a science. A lot of the times fallacies, one statement can have three or four fallacies, or you can, you can really pull out various fallacies from the same, from one sentence. And that's a good example. Mm -hmm. I, I often hear uh, the term deconstructionism. Is, where does, does that fit in here, or is that one that fits in in other, well, people deconstruct, try and deconstruct the truth? Would you call uh, that a hold apart different. fallacy? I, I can answer that. I dealt yeah, with that in my book. Um, deconstructionism certainly fits into the concept of ad hominem. The point of deconstructionism, which is a postmodern approach, is that people have bad motives. And so they're saying this, but you can't believe what they're saying because we have to go look at the person and go back and see 
Why? Mm. Okay. So Thomas Jefferson had slaves. <laughs> says, so. you know, all men are created equal, and then they deconstruct it. Well, he didn't mean slaves. He didn't mean women. Yeah. And so therefore, he's a hypocrite. Therefore, we don't listen to the founding fathers because they're white Euro males. Okay, that's mm. how it was portrayed in the 90s when I debated with deconstructionists. Yeah. But there's always the assumption that some sort of a power play or keep yourself in power or yep. some other thing going on. And so the deconstructionist doesn't accept the argument for what it is. They're going to go back and deconstruct the Constitution, deconstruct Abe Lincoln, deconstruct yeah. whoever. And that's, that's going to be like, just like with what Eric was saying, it's, it's, it's going to be a hold apart fallacy. It's going to be a... Uh, ad hominem fallacy, it's going to be a red herring. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it pretty really, well encompasses it, a bunch it, of fallacies. It fits well in a, a bunch of them. Yeah. And we'll get to those other ones. Uh, those are on the list here. So, uh, The straw man is the next one. The straw man changes or exaggerates an opponent's a, a position in such a way to make it easier to refute. It constructs a new position that's superficially similar to what they actually say. And uh, what I like to use it as an example is that I'm, I consider myself politically to be, uh, I'm a conservative, I'm kind of a, a semi-libertarian, I'm, I'm a small government type. Well, people like to call me an anarchist because of that, because I want smaller government, I want no government. Well, that's a straw man. I'm not, I don't advocate for no government. But conversely, somebody on the other side, you know, is, is more into, they want to help people, they want to use the government for to help the poor and the needy. And so they, they think government services are a good thing. They trust people. And to say that they're a totalitarian because they want this big government would be a straw man. They're not advocating for totalitarianism. So it really, that cuts both ways. Here's a Dilbert that I have that illustrates a straw man where if you've, if you've never read Dilbert, there's three characters here. From left to right on that first pane, there's the boss. There's Wally and Dilbert. And they're sitting down at a meeting, and Wally says, I accomplished nothing this week because I was going through certification. And he's hoping the boss won't ask, what do you mean about certification? But of course, that's exactly what he does. Certification for what? So he thinks to himself, all right, let's go to plan B here. Let's mount a passionate defense against an argument that no one made. <laughs> so he starts screaming, how can you say certification is a waste of time? Without certification, management would be reduced to randomness. Do you think you'd be happier just guessing who's qualified? Do you? Do you? There's something wrong with you. <laughs> you see, he's, uh, he's con constructed the straw man. He did, the boss wasn't going after, is certification necessary? Is it valuable? He just asked, what are you getting certified for? And then we have in Scripture, we go back to the garden. I mentioned previously what God said about eating from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes along. He says, Indeed, as God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God didn't say that. God didn't say don't eat from any tree. He said don't eat from that tree. This tree is okay. That tree is not good. So Satan's twisting his words. And, uh, try, and, and ultimately, we know from the story of human history that he succeeded. Moving on to the next. Does everybody understand straw man? The next two fallacies uh, are very similar. They can be kind of confusing. Uh, sometimes they're put together as one fallacy. Um, I separate them in two. Appeal to nature. 
the appeal to nature works like this. It says that if something is found in nature, it's good. And if something is artificial, it's not found in nature, not good. And where this differs from the next fallacy we're going to talk about is this is addressing material matters. Things like food, medication, clothing, uh, anything found in nature. A good counter to this, if, you know, uh, people will, will use this a lot of times with uh, home remedies. They'll say, you know, don't go to the, buy this you know, pharmaceutical garbage, go get this home remedy and it'll make you better and it's better for your body and whatnot because it's found in nature. And the way that we as Christians often hear this with a twist is that's how God made it. That's what God, that's what God wanted, you, you know, God made it that way, so it's better. Well, God made the ingredients that the pharmaceuticals are made out of too. And I like to use the example that, you know, you can go to nature and find hemlock. Hemlock will kill you. <laughs> then you've got protein shakes. Protein shakes are artificial. <laughs> They'll make you stronger. Uh, so it's not necessarily true. Is this the kind of argument where if God wanted me to fly, give me wings? If God wanted me to fly, give me wings. Um, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, there's some of that to that, yeah. That would be a natural uh, thing out of nature, a, a material matter in nature. Uh, and then another one we see that's very, very similar is a naturalistic fallacy. It's called the is-ought fallacy, and it... It addresses moral matters, and it basically says that if something is, something is, therefore it ought to be. And, and the common one you'll hear is homosexuality. They'll say that um, there are animals in nature that engage in homosexual acts. Therefore, it's not a moral issue. It's not moral, it's not immoral, it's amoral. Well, I can counter to that. <laughs> Some animals eat their young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can see that n just because something's natural both both these fallacies appeal to nature naturalistic fallacy um, being in nature doesn't necessarily make it good it do not being in nature doesn't make it bad in and of itself um, you can argue sure there are going to be home remedies that are better than, than uh, your, your uh, pharmaceuticals but just pointing to the fact that it's found in nature is not a constructive argument. It's a fallacy. So, uh, any questions before we move on? Mike? Hold on a sec. <laughs> I was just wondering then, is it proper to say, um, because it's not absolutely always true? Right. You know, is, is that kind of what right. we're saying it's, here? It's going yeah. back to that non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Okay. The premise is it's found in nature, so the conclusion would be that it's it's good, and that it doesn't correlate like that. It's, so, not it's, absolutely always true. Right. Yeah. Go to hemlock and protein shakes. Is, uh, right. uh, let me comment on that. Maybe connect this to the Bible though, for people to see the mm -hmm. pertinence of studying this. If you go back to the garden where you get the beginning of everything, God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and right. then forbade them to eat of it. So what's good or moral or right is found by revelation where God has spoken. Okay, Nature is, but nature contains 
the allowed and the forbidden. Mm-hmm. Especially after the fall, nature is falling. The whole creation groans and travails. So the argument that appeals to a lot of Christians, it's natural, therefore it's good, uh, ignores divine revelation. And when it comes to everything else, it's not necessarily forbidden. We're required to, as human beings, use our rational minds to determine what is beneficial and what isn't. Okay, which is something that the emergent wants to deny. And so I have a illustration in my book called a, the postmodern mushroom hunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the people that meditate go out and find mushrooms, and the people that are rationalists like me, they would want a course on what's an edible mushroom. Mm-hmm. And see, God commands us to use our rational mind. Ab and Eve had to distinguish between the tree of good and evil and the rest of the trees that were allowed. That was by revelation. If God said, whatever's natural, or he didn't say anything, well, natural's good. Well, there's the yep. tree of the knowledge of good and evil is natural. Yep, and, and uh, special revelation always trumps uh, natural It tells us, yeah, special revelation tells us how to relate to God's right. creation, and it informs us. Yep. But just making a decision that something's natural, which is really uh, a big issue today in apologetics and witnessing evangelism, um, so many people are attracted to neo-pagan nature religions, yep. this pre- the prevailing idol of the day. Yep. Yep. And if you preach against it, you will get some very angry people. Yeah. And I encountered this myself as well. Some of you might know that my oldest son has been uh, dealing with brain cancer. And, uh, you know, he's, as far as we know, he's clear and he's clean and stuff. But um, when you have a child, especially a child, you have a loved one, but especially a child going through something like that, the, the natural remedy people come out of the woodwork. And everybody's got their remedy. And this one is absolutely guaranteed. It's just going to cure your son. It's going to make him better. He's never going to have a problem again. And if you take it, you'll never get cancer either. And had I listened to them, my son would probably be dead. Next up, two wrongs make a right. Uh, it's a, you've, you've all heard this. Probably your mother taught you growing up. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. You don't get to hit your brother because he hit you. Uh, and so often when this one's committed, it's a little bit more subtle. <laughs> but, um, and it can be misused as well. But uh, it, politicians will use it all the time. If one side, side does something wrong, then all of a sudden that's license for the other side to do it too. Um, and a more specific form of this fallacy is called to quoque, which we'll get into under ad hominem fallacies. It's Latin for you too. Uh, the fallacy is often appealed to by people who oppose the death penalty. And they'll say that um, killing or executing our worst criminals is wrong, and it, it doesn't right the wrong that they committed. They'll say that um, two, two deaths, you know, killing, you know, killing one person doesn't, uh, ex- doesn't right the, the killing that that person committed. However, this is a false example of two uh, the two wrongs make a right fallacy. Scripture tells us that the government does not bear the sword in vain in Romans 13.4. And that when man sheds another man's blood, by, by man shall his blood be shed, Genesis 9.6. Another example of 
uh, Scripture is going to trump uh, the fallacious argument every time. A any question on two wrongs make a right? Burden of proof is a huge one that you've got to watch out for. Uh, anytime you've got two people that are debating with each other, trying to get, either get each other to agree or they're in front of an audience, they want the audience to, they want to win, win people over to their side of an argument, um, a lot of times you'll see people violate the burden of proof. And the burden of proof is simple. It just says that if you make the claim, you have the burden of proving it. I don't get to make a claim and then tell you, you proved me wrong. And uh, we see that a lot. Um, if anybody's been watching the last few days, uh, John MacArthur had the Strange Fire Conference down in uh, uh, Los Angeles at his church. And I encountered this one myself. Uh, there's a lot of discussion going on on social media during the conference. And I ended up in, on Twitter with a discussion with, with a guy who was, he, he called himself a conservative Presbyterian continuationist. So he believes in some continuation of, of the gifts uh, of the Spirit. And um, he and I were going back and forth. And for the most part, we agreed. I mean, we both take issue with the things that John MacArthur and the group were speaking out against. We, we would agree, for the most part, with MacArthur and the people at the conference. But he came to me and he says, well, if you are a cessationist, you have to, you bear the burden to prove that, uh, that, that the gifts have ceased. That's, that's your, you're making the claim that the gifts have ceased. You, you bear the, the responsibility to prove it. To which I just replied and I said, look, the scripture says that if a man speaks on God's behalf, or he says that he's speaking on God's behalf, it's his burden to prove that he's speaking for God. Uh, moving the goalposts is another <laughs> kind of interesting one that comes up. It's called special pleading or raising the bar. And what will happen is in the middle of a discussion, all of a sudden the rules will change on you. Uh, somebody will say, well, I want you to show me that, you know, an example of where you're right, you'll, you'll do so. And then all of a sudden they'll say, well, that doesn't count. You know, they're moving the goalposts on you. So... Uh, Eric and I were talking last week as we were getting ready for this, and we were talking. We were we were watching a clip of a debate between Greg Kokel and Deepak Chopra, and they were talking. You know, Deepak Chopra. Here's a guy. He'll write book after book after book, telling you about who God is and how to know God and how to get closer to God and and how to know that you are God and whatnot. <laughs> and <laughs> Greg Kokel comes in and just kind of knocks him down with some some logic and. Deepak Chopra retorts and says, well, we can't really know who God is. <laughs> he's moving the goalposts. He's writing books saying who God is. And then as soon as he's countered, he moves the goalposts and he says, well, you can't know who God is. Uh, another one that I've heard is the, in the abortion debate, a pro-lifer proves that, uh, that the fetus is a human being by using self-evident truths in biology. Then the pro-abortionist who he's talking to shifts the discussion to the standard of living of the child if it's born. So uh, what he's doing is he's changing the discussion from what is it to how shall it live. He's moving the goalposts. And then this is a, like a specific example of, the no tr of the moving the goalposts. It's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. Um, it disregards counterexamples with an arbitrary purity test. And the key word of that is arbitrary. 
And the example that I found on that uh, yourfallacyis.com, that's that poster that you've got there. Um, Angus declares that Scotsmen do not put sugar in their porridge, to which Lachlan points out that he is a Scotsman and he puts sugar in his porridge. So furious like a true Scot, Angus yells out that no true Scotsman puts sugar in his porridge. <laughs> and you'll hear it in the, the PC debate. Tolerant people don't oppose legal recognition of same-sex marriage. So I'm tolerant, and then they define what tolerance is. You know? uh, <clears throat> examples from scripture of the no true Scotsman. The Pharisees accuse the disciples of being impure, that is, not real Jews because they don't wash their hands before they eat. This was uh, Mark 7, 1 through 13. Their standard was that they have to wash their hands before they eat, but that's not required by Scripture. Atheists accuse Christians of, of the new no true Scotsman fallacy. When we declare that people who do not bear good fruit, uh, we say, well, they're not Christian. They're not bearing good fruit. They'll say, well, you're, that's a no true Scotsman fallacy. You know, they'll point to Eric Rudolph, who murdered people, and, and say, well, he said he was a Christian. Well, he also admired the, the teachings of atheist philosopher Nietzsche. And declaring that he's not a Christian because he murdered people is not an arbitrary purity test. That's the key word there. We can point to Scripture and say, this man isn't living up to the standards set by Scripture. And by the fruit, we don't believe that he's a Christian. Um, you know, Andy, in that Mark 7, the issue there, the Pharisees are moving the goalposts. They're saying your disciples must wash their hands. Yep. Well, when you read the Old Testament, those who were bound to purity by washing their hands were the Levitical priests. So now arbitrarily notice they're going beyond Scripture. So what has set the goalposts for us once and for all? As Bob was saying earlier, it's the divine revelation. And so what Andy's showing us here is that now arbitrarily the Pharisees are changing the goalposts to their own standard. Right. And so that's, they're transgressing the boundary. And so you often hear, and you've seen Bob write about true binding and, and true loosing. The goalposts are set by the scriptures, and we're bound to what the scriptures say. The Pharisees are going beyond scripture, and they're arbitrarily moving the goalposts. That's the issue. So that's kind of a scriptural way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got one left in this category. Before we catch argument from anecdote, is there... Does everybody understand no true Scotsman and moving the goalposts? Yeah. Uh, an argument from anecdote. Uh, there are general rules in life, and you're always going to find counterexamples. That's why they call it a general rule and not a law of nature. Um, but appealing to that exception to the general rule would be an argument from anecdote. Uh, example I came up with is that eating candy for breakfast every day for 30 years, generally speaking, will give you cavities. But appealing to your friend's cousin's shop teacher who ate candy for breakfast every day for 30 years and has never had a cavity would be a fallacious argument from anecdote. Argument from anecdote is a, a common manipulative tactic in politics. You'll see it a lot. Uh, you see it in Obamacare. <laughs> uh, and, and I mentioned already the uh, alternative medicine and natural remedies. That's, a, that's also highly dependent on... Um, Argument from anecdote. So example from scripture would be Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise man hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A father might be abusive or teach evil, using this example to disprove the general rule that's found in Proverbs uh, would be a fallacious argument from anecdote.
Um, we've got five, four fallacies. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's say, perchance, you get into practice, you learn what some of these are, and you're in the cameras rolling, you understand that, and you see that somebody's using a fallacy as you will continue to describe. You may address this later, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do you argue the fallacy maker, or do you argue the point that you're trying to make? Always argue the point. You can point out that it's a fallacy, but if you start going after the fallacy maker, then you're committing an ad hominem, which is the next fallacy we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> ad hominem is a Latin phrase that means against the man. Uh, it is a category of fallacies, at least as the way I present them. Uh, it's also a fallacy itself. It's a specific fallacy. It avoids the argument being made and attacks the person making the argument instead. Um, it's uh, fallacious because the truth is independent of any person. Uh, bad people are capable of making good logical arguments. John 8, 39 through 41 says, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as you... But as it is, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I have heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They're attacking Jesus not on his arguments. They're, back, they're, they're attacking him on his uh, family lineage. So that, does that all make sense? Everybody understand ad hominem? Pretty simple. Genetic fallacy is, is similar. It's, it's, uh, it's also in, in the category of an ad hominem fallacy. It seeks to disprove an argument by discrediting the source of the argument. Sometimes that's the person. Sometimes it's, you know, it could be anything. Wherever an argument comes from, discredit the source, and then all of a sudden people won't, uh, they, they won't um, follow that conclusion. They won't, they'll disregard the conclusion that that source comes up with. And I think the perfect example, I, I showed you my sources at the beginning, Rational Wiki, an atheistic so, uh, website, anti-Christian. They, uh, they, they hate us as Christians. But disregarding them because they hate Christians would be to commit the genetic fallacy. Uh, they, they do construct their arguments right, or their, their fallacies are, are presented correctly. They just don't know how to use them right. Uh, example, also, uh, Philip and the found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? <laughs> so disregarding the entire city of Nazareth just because they don't like the city. Uh, Andy, uh -huh. I want to address that. that. That is probably one of the more common things that afflict evangelical Christians because that's how we think we really shouldn't. Yep. Okay, because uh, let's say we're just wanting to get the forecast. So the, the local weather person says tomorrow is going to be cloudy and rainy, and somebody does some research and founds out, found out that guy was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> so we can't trust his weather forecast. Yeah. I mean, literally, I hear things that absurd. Right. Okay, and... I don't know why that is. We just like to know, here's all the good people, here's all the bad people. The good ones can't be wrong about anything. The bad ones can't be right about anything. Yep. So we solve the problem. Yep. Now, that leads people to become so extremely parochial, they can't learn anything from anybody. We find that in seminaries, too. People go to bad seminaries but get good educations. 
whether you get a good education <laughs> has a lot to do with a couple of things. One of them is being strong-minded. Right. And the other one is be willing to do your own research and mm -hmm. use the resources available. Yeah. And you can get a great education from a bad source if you just know if, your if way through well, the if system. If you're able to understand truth from Okay, so we, but this parochial, you know what I mean by parochial? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, it's a statement like this. Mark Driscoll likes to call it tribalism. <laughs> it is, it's rather tribal. Uh, parochialism says we're right because we're us. Okay, and then that holds until we have a dispute amongst us and then part of us is wrong. <laughs> yeah. you, you see how that... <laughs> okay, so that's... God bless Texas. <laughs> but it's, it's, it does us well... Yeah. To to understand how we do come to the knowledge of truth, yeah, and that someone that we maybe find distasteful for whatever reason may tell us the truth that would save us our lives. Yeah, it's I bring up Bart Driscoll because he was at he he showed up at that strange fire conference, wanted to pass out his book, and when and he was asked not to, and they took his book, but he came back and he says, "We got to get over the tribalism." <laughs> well. In his case, tribalism meant those who teach God's word going after those who don't are engaging in tribalism. I mentioned the commentaries, too. Just now. Oh, yeah. Here, here's one. And this weighs so heavily on especially pastors, teachers, elders, because you don't want to be looked at unfavorably by the congregation. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in Bible college, Reverend Smith, my favorite teacher, recommended a theological dictionary of the New Testament, which is one of the greatest sources for the Greek words in the Bible, where they, where they came from, different ranges of meaning. And, and if you have the Logos Bible software with any kind of a good package, you have it. Mm -hmm. Well, somewhere in the 80s, somebody found out that Kittle, they used to call this Kittle, he was the general editor for the first part of it, supported Hitler. And so then it was going around, you cannot cite anything from the, the best Greek source you have, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, because Kittle supported Hitler. And uh, it, it almost scares you away. And then uh, after the war, another, Bromley or somebody else did the, the rest of it. The material is still right and true on the Greek language. Kittle's problems, he can answer to God if he's a yeah. Christian at all. In fact, there are entries in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament by Boltman, who demythologized the Bible, but his entry is correct because he had some professional pride. Yeah. So Christians are so afflicted by this, and if I let that prevail, which it almost did in my life, I would be a very pathetic preacher and teacher and writer because I wouldn't have any sources. You can find something wrong with just about anybody that you may want to cite. And well, so we got to get away from yeah. that. Jim and I were just discussing this morning as we were setting up Chuck Missler, who's a teacher that uh, Jim's enjoying going through right now. And I went through a lot of Chuck Missler's teaching when I was first saved. And I've grown away from him. There's some things I don't like. but. You know, I, I uh, came dangerously close to a genetic fallacy with uh, the way I talked about Ch uh, Chuck Missler. 
I got a lot of good stuff out of it. I mean, the reason why I, today I love verse-by-verse -verse teaching, it really comes from my time studying Missler's verse-by-verse commentaries. And so um, we're all guilty of it. We all uh, are capable of it. Um, just, just be mindful of it and not only see when other people are doing it, but uh, it's easy to commit it ourselves as well. Poisoning the well, it's another, it's, it's kind of a preemptive ad hominem. It, basically it seeks to go before the fact, before uh, the, the person on the other side can get their side of the story out, um, discredit them completely before they ever have a chance. Uh, example, my opponent has been known to cite Ben Franklin as a source to, in support of the U.S. Postal Service. Before he does, you should know that Ben Franklin is a known womanizer and philanderer. <laughs> <laughs> you see the fallacy there? That the, the post office isn't a bad institution just because it was created by Ben Franklin, who was a womanizer. <laughs> and then our last ad hominem fallacy is to quoque, which I've already mentioned a few times. To quoque is a Latin phrase that means you too, or you did it. It's called the you did it too fallacy. And it's sometimes referred to as an appeal to hypocrisy. So it's a more specific of the two wrongs make a right fallacy. It uh, pits one side against the other, uh, accusing the behavior of one side, excusing the behavior of one side because of the similar behavior by the other side. And another one, this, I've mentioned it before, and I'm going to mention it many times. You see these fallacies in political debates all the time, and this is a favorite one. That rounds out our, uh, associate, our uh, ad hominem fallacies. Uh, any further questions or or uh, points you'd like to make? Sorry. Well, yeah, hold on. I think I can get that far. <laughs> I've got my longest. I got my longest cord. Okay, this is purely per personal. How many philosophy classes did you have to take to learn this, or I have no. Did you do formal, it on your own, or? I have no formal training in philosophy, or uh, whatnot. It's just an interest that I took. I think this logical fallacy stuff is just—it's fascinating. I love learning about it, and. A lot of times, the easy, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Sometimes, so, uh, that's why I wanted yeah. to do it for Echo Zoe and and uh, it's didn't not have any trouble. philosophy. Philosophy well, would well. That's need, where you're going to learn it if you go to college. You're yeah, find it in the philosophy it, department. Logic would be something prior to philosophy. Right. Right. Um, I learned some of this stuff from R.C. Sproul back in the '80s. Oh, uh, Sproul is a great resource for yeah this kind and. Of stuff. Some of the things you need to know about logic, some people by nature, whether they ever studied logic, think very logically, and they're somewhat consistent whether they ever studied how it all works or not. And even the best logicians make logical errors. Mm -hmm. And if you can find somebody really good at logic, there's your proofreader <laughs> after the grammar the, the, the material that I published, I had someone who's just brilliant in logic be go through every chapter before we publish anything and challenge anything that may be weak. Mm -hmm. And it's to your peril if you don't want anybody to do that. The result of that was in, in, in both cases, the book on purpose driven, the other one on emergent, none of the critics ever wanted to debate the relative merit of the book, that you'll find somebody else's book that made illogical claims and then mm -hmm. smash them with it. 
know this. If you've got 10 arguments, seven are valid, three are falling into one of these categories. If you go into debate with those 10 arguments, they'll take the three and I'll beat you with it mercilessly. As they should. Beat, beat, beat. As they should. They'll never, they'll never, they never heard the seven. Yeah. So when you publish something with all of that stripped out yeah. by people smarter than me, they just go silent. They don't have anything to say. Because mm -hmm. they can't deal with a real argument. They can only deal with a fallacy. Loanne? I don't know how far we got here. Couple more feet there. <laughs> and I guess it's more of just thinking out loud than a question, but you know, we've talked here before about the Hegelian dialect and how that's in the church and the schools and yep. politics oh, yeah. and the workplace. <laughs> and where I found this helpful you know, getting this information, like when Eric did it before, too. But, you know, I used to think you'd go into a meeting and everybody would be putting their cards on the table trying to really come to a conclusion together. Mm -hmm. And you start realizing that, you know, yeah, they're, they're not. I mean, they come in with an agenda that they're trying to change your mind on. And you need to have these, be able to recognize these different yeah. fallacies they're using against you. Or you will fall right down that slippery slope. And the other thing, and I'm sure you'll get into it later, but oftentimes when we're in an argument, I use argument kind of in quotes, but, you know, you get real emotional, and then your emotions take you down a bunny trail in itself. Yep. But if you're able to kind of step back and be looking, doing your homework, looking for the fallacies in the argument, it takes it off the personal nature of the argument and it does, keeps yeah. it focused on the argument. Yeah, I find it very useful online. If you're in, uh, you know, social media, it's very easy to fall into arguments with people. And if you can just take a deep breath, you read something you don't like, just take a breath, step away for a minute, think about it, pick it apart, look at the fallacies. There's almost always fallacies involved if, if it's a really bad argument. Come back and point out the fallacy. People will just throw up their hands. they just like, okay, I don't want to argue with you anymore. I'd just like to bring up uh, an example we just had happened here, uh, and I think it brings up the uh, parochial uh, or the tribalism, uh, uh -huh. which is under the gene genetic fallacy, and maybe it may be poisoning the well, too. Yeah. You guys just cited R.C. Sproul as a wonderful example of a teacher you've, you've learned many things from. Yeah. Well, he's reformed, and, yeah. and he's amillennial. Now, yeah. you know, we, someone could say, I'm not going to have anything to do with R.C. Sproul yeah. because he doesn't Can have I the same... From the pizzas? Eschatology pizza? that I do, so, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a good example. Do you mind if I use the, the Devani's pizza example? Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not so odd. Yeah, Eric and I had an, a perfect example of that. We were um, meeting as, as our fellowship was going through the, the troubles that we went through uh, late last year. Uh, we, we met at Devani's, and we were kind of de deciding. There was several of us there uh, trying to figure out what we were going to do. And uh, it came up that one, you know, one of the arguments that the other side was appealing to was this book, and each chapter was written by a different author, and the chapter that was brought up was R.C. Sproul, Jr. And, uh, of course, Eric just <laughs> kind of went... My emotions got the best. <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, he's a preterist, <laughs> or a partial preterist. And, and you can't say that around Andy. <laughs> That's a genetic fallacy. <laughs> but... But Eric, gracious as he was, he, he appreciated that. You know, he, he, he liked that, you know, let's take, let's take R.C. Sproul Jr. for his strengths and, and recognize that we all have weaknesses as well. It so. took me 10 minutes to like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we are uh, basically out of time. We will pick up next week. Hold on to your notes, uh, your slides. We'll pick up next week with association fallacies and move on from there. Uh, thanks, Thank Andy. you.